The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about all the wonderful things that Senator Joe Simidian has done in the state of California for privacy, and I'm so sad because in November he will be he will have his term limits up so we are so thrilled we've had him on every year since we've had this show and he has always been our real privacy hero so let me tell you if you haven't heard him before this man is really something um, Joseph Midian was elected to the California State uh, Senate in November 2004 to represent the 11th State Senate District which includes portions of San Mateo, Santa Clara, and Santa Cruz counties. His public service over the years includes stints as a state assembly member, member of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors. He was mayor of Palo Alto and president of the Palo Alto School Board. He has also served as an election observer, supervisor in El Salvador and Bosnia, and he participated in refuge relief, refugee relief, and resettlement efforts in Albania and Kosovo. In the Senate, he has really shined. He really has. He has chaired the, he, right now he chairs the Environmental Quality Committee and serves as a member of the following other committees, the Budget and Fiscal Review, where he is chair of the subcommittee um, number two on resources, the Environmental Protection and Transportation Committee, the Education, Energy, Utilities, and Communications Committee, the Natural Resources and Water and Transportation and Housing Committees, and most importantly for me, he has been chair of the Senate Select Committee on Privacy, where he has been a real leader in introducing important privacy legislation that has really transformed this whole country. So uh, he has, like I said, he's been our real hero and since serving in the legislature, he really has been widely recognized across the country for all the work that he's done. And he, let me just say that the California Journal identified Joe Simidian as among those at the top of the class during his first term in the legislature. And even more recently, Capital Weekly identified Joe Simidian as one of half dozen most effective members of the legislature. I could go on and on with pages and pages of all the great work that he's done, but I want to have you hear him and just listen to all the great things that he can tell us about what's going on in privacy in California. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us again. Good to be with you, Mari. 
Well, you have now been in the legislature for 12 years. Wow. And um, you just have a few more months until November. So let's, let's talk about over these 12 years, let's talk about the privacy, the progress that you've seen in privacy and identity theft issues. Can you, can you talk about that? You know, I think it's been a mixed bag, Mari. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I think on an issue-by-issue basis when uh, particular privacy concerns are raised, uh, we've had a relatively good hearing for the most part in the California State Legislature, and I think California has uh, typically been at the forefront uh, on uh, privacy issues uh, across the range of privacy issues that uh, come up here in California. That being said, while I think we've been a, a front runner, I, I do think that as I look back now over a dozen years, I, I think we, we, we have yet to find a way to wrestle these privacy issues to the ground sort of systemically. We, we tend to take things up, and it's, it's partly the nature of the legislative process, uh, issue by issue, bill by bill, law by law, rather than sort of taking a big step back and asking ourselves, how can we ensure that privacy concerns are embedded in everything we do? And so uh, both looking back and looking forward a little bit, uh, as I say, California has been, continues to be a leader in many respects, uh, certainly out in front of the federal uh, government, where I think Congress has really struggled with these issues for the most part. But, but there's a bigger picture uh, set of issues that I think we, we have yet to really come to grips with. Right. You and I talked last year about privacy by design, which uh, Commissioner of, Can- of Canada, Anne Kovikian, kind of coined that, uh, that, that phrase about building privacy into the architecture of all this great new technology and just that's kind of what we really need, and, and we're just not there, are we? We're not, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach that I think uh, merits further development, both in the private sector and in the public sector. You know, here in the public sector world, where I am doing my work right now, you know, we should be asking ourselves, uh, whenever we allocate a dollar of the public's resources, are we doing that in a way that's consistent with protecting their a constitutional right to privacy, keeping in mind that here in California, privacy is a California Constitution uh, right to privacy that's embedded in our Constitution. But, it, you know, it doesn't happen that way. When we, when we invest in, uh, you know, purchasing various products for the state, uh, does the purchase process uh, take account of the privacy implications in what we're doing? And then, just as I say more broadly in all the legislation we passed, do we have do we have it built in? And we, and we just don't. So we end up uh, having, you know, a battle royal on every one of these individual questions. And as I say, I think for the most part, California can be proud of its record, but it's, it's piecemeal. Yes. And, uh, I think that's, the, that's making the job both uh, harder than it should be and also less complete than it should be. Exactly. So are the privacy issues that mattered when you first got into the legislature, are they still the same or are they different now? You know, I would say the issues are, are largely the same, uh, even though the technology is obviously very different. I was uh, struck just within this last year, uh, you know, our Attorney General Kamala Harris has done some very good work. She was enforcing uh, privacy protections that she thought the makers of various uh, mobile applications, apps, uh, were not incorporating in their technology. And uh, when she issued uh, the announcement that they had come to a settlement agreement, and we're talking, you know, the big names in uh, the uh, online app world for mobile devices, um, I was, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised to realize she had relied on 
legislation that I had passed back in 2003 before anyone knew what an app was. Uh, <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, a couple of things to, to take away from that. Uh, you may or may not remember, uh, Murray, this was the Online Privacy Protection Act back in 2003 that said quite simply commercial website operators had to post their privacy policies and then yes. have to abide by those policies. They had to actually follow the uh, policy that they said they would. And um, as I say, long before any of us were talking about apps on our iPhones or whatever, and yet the issues were still much the same nine years later. And I thought, well, good to notice that the issues are still much the same. And um, good for us, uh, forgive, you know, the little pat on the back to myself here, but, I, you know, probably more luck than uh, design at the time. Good for us that we wrote the law in a way that made it useful and applicable, you know, almost a decade later for technology we frankly hadn't anticipated at the time. Right, but you you wrote it broad enough that it implemented that, and I remember because I, I sat as an advisor to the Office of Privacy Protection, and we actually took your legislation and input recommended practices for businesses, so it was probably easier. I mean, that, that kind of helped it to make it clear to businesses of what they're really supposed to be doing, and it was great legislation, and it's it does apply now to apps and well, mobile devices and everything. And it's a reminder why, to the extent that we can, we want to make legislation technology neutral. And I know, you know, I hear about this from uh, the folks I work with in Silicon Valley, which is the area that I represent, of course. Uh, and, you know, for them, this is a constant theme. Please try and be technology neutral. And, and they have their own business reasons for that, I, which I understand. But entirely apart from that, um, I think it makes sense in terms of making sure that we we focus on the problem and the issue, uh, which is likely to be with us over some period of time, as distinct from focusing on the technology, which we know is going to change uh, probably more quickly than we have the ability to keep pace in the legislative process. And I think the greatest thing about you being up in the Silicon Valley is you are not technology adverse. You're just talking about building privacy into these wonderful technology. I mean, we love technology. It's it's yeah, fun. My, it's great. I don't great. know if I shared with you, actually. My, my mother was a computer programmer and programmer analyst back in the late 50s and early 60s before uh, most people knew what a programmer or analyst was. And uh, I, I grew up with, uh, you know, little pieces of chat around the living room floor when she brought home those uh, decks at the end of the day to, to do her work. And uh, it, to me, um, you know, I, I've all, it's sort of been um, just part of uh, what the world was about, and uh, in some ways it probably makes me a little more blasé than I should be about the sort of whiz-bang uh, excitement that uh, the world of tech, uh, I think, generates among a lot of my constituents. Uh, you know, it was what mom did for a living, so how exciting could it be? That was sort of my take. Right, right. But it, it really, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I make the case, look, the technology is uh, rarely, if ever, the problem. Uh, the, the question is always, do we have the wisdom to use the technology wisely? And are we willing to adopt some sensible rules of the road for the way in which we use the technology? And that's, that's the way I've tried to approach the work here as a legislator in Sacramento. And, and that's great, because I think you represented the Silicon Valley very, very positively, promoting their their great creativity, but at the same time being responsible and ethical and, and really protecting privacy. Well, we've had some, I, you know, candidly, Mari, we've had some friction. I, gotta, I know, I've, I know. I've <laughs> folks in the Valley who, you know, say, what's going on? You know, you're our representative, and yet you're, you're making our life more difficult on this, that, or the other issue. And I, I take the view, look, if, if Silicon Valley legislators are not going to be 
uh, at least a little bit savvy about the privacy implications of the technology, who on earth is? I mean, it seems to me it falls to us to talk about these issues and in a way that's thoughtful and responsible. And as I said, you know, looks at the what's the problem behavior or the issue we're trying to deal with rather than uh, vilify the technology. Uh, then I think, um, I, as I say, I, I almost feel like we have a special obligation, those of us who uh, represent the Valley, to step up on these issues. Absolutely. So what about the public attitudes? Have you seen a change in the 12 years? What if, what kind of evolution have you seen? Well, I, I'm not so much... I guess it's a change. I, I think that as much as people say they value their privacy, and as you know from your work, they certainly care about identity theft. I think right. it's something that whether, you know, if it's happened to someone, they know just what a nightmare that is, and if it hasn't happened to them, I think that's a, a sort of a tangible thing people can wrap their arms around and say, I, I don't want that to happen in my life. But I think that the broader notions of privacy have unfortunately become a little too abstract for people. And I, I think, you know, if I would critique the work that um, both those of us in the legislature and that the, those of us who characterize ourselves as privacy advocates have done over the years, I think we need to do a better job of making privacy a more tangible right for people to understand. And um, I, I think it seems a little abstract, a little so what to a lot of folks. And I, I think they start to get just not only comfortable but accepting of greater and greater intrusions on their privacy on a daily basis. And, and I, when I say make it more tangible, I'll give you an example. One of my colleagues had a very well-intentioned bill uh, that was in front of the Senate Education Committee uh, that dealt with uh, the ability of security f- folks on the campus to access pupil information uh, in, in order, hopefully, to make the security uh, folks uh, more effective at taking care of the kids. And you sort of immediately think, well, who could be against that? And, but as I sat there uh, in the education committee looking at this from you know, my perspective as a privacy advocate, I leaned forward and said, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that a 23-year-old male private security officer is going to be able to walk into the office and simply ask for and receive the name, phone number, address, and class schedule for a 17-year-old girl who's a senior at the high school? Mm, right. And all of a sudden, <laughs> everybody had a look on their face that suggested maybe this wasn't quite as easy a call <laughs> as it otherwise might appear. And it was just, it was entirely a function of the work I've done in the privacy realm over these last decade plus, and, and just looking at the same set of issues through a somewhat different lens. And I, I think, you know, in that moment, I was reminded again, if you talk about privacy as an abstract issue, I think for a lot of folks, it's hard for them to understand the importance even in their own lives. And I think what we all need to do a better job of, Mari, and I know this is why it's so important that you're out there doing the work in the public arena that you are. Uh, By the way, I just saw you in Money Magazine a few months ago. But I mean, I I think we have to explain better why this matters in people's daily lives. The, the, The so what question is one we should be prepared to answer. You are absolutely right when we tell these stories or or what could happen or ask the right questions like you ask. But I think that's why I remember many, many years ago when I was a victim of identity theft back in 1996 when people didn't even know what it was. I think, you know, when you would talk about, I would talk about what's so people need to be careful of identity theft, they looked at me like, what are you talking about? How can that happen? And then when the stories became much more clear and people had real life understanding of 
you know, okay, you go in and, and there's no money in your bank or you can't get a car, you can't get a house, you can't get a job. Those kinds of things really honed it in. So absolutely, we, we do have to do a better job and, and I'm going to take heed of that. So you have d- authored more than a dozen bills on privacy protection and identity theft since you've been in the legislature and what first got you so interested in privacy from the beginning? I know now about your mom and that as a little kid you grew up, but that wasn't really about privacy. No, that no, was about technology. It, as I say, it was. Uh, it, it it sort of gave, made me, if anything, a little bit blasé about the the world of technology. It was something that I had just grown up with uh, around me in the house. I I arrived in the legislature uh, in the year two thousand, and um, if you think about the sort of the growth in uh, the the online world at that particular time, so late nineties. Uh, Silicon Valley legislator, and it just the privacy implications of uh, doing business online seemed to me to be front and center. And I talked with the then Speaker of the State Assembly, a uh, very bright, capable guy, Bob Hertzberg from uh, Southern California, about these issues and said, you know, I'd really like to find a, a way to explore some of these issues that are really, you know, just emerging uh, at that time. And he and I talked about the, the use of a select committee, which is a process we use in the legislature when we have an issue we want to study a little bit more. And he was very encouraging and very helpful and said, why don't you chair a select committee on privacy in the assembly at that time, and uh, I'll authorize it and uh, go to work. And that was really uh, how my, uh, I'd call it more curiosity than anything else at the time, uh, Mari, then developed into... Uh, a desire to work in the area, and frankly, I was probably more than a little naive as a new member of the legislature at the time uh, about just what a can of worms I had opened up, and boy, uh, did I, and you'll remember those first few years uh, I was working on the security breach notification legislation and the, uh, then the Online Privacy Protection Act that required the uh, use of a privacy policy and required folks to ab- actually abide by the privacy policy, and that really, uh, those two uh, first efforts in the online world, as challenging as they were, uh, really uh, sort of got me hooked, uh, both in terms of the fact that these are just fascinating issues, as, as you know, but, but also uh, in terms of how wide the impact uh, was if we did good work uh, and how much at risk people's privacy really would be if um, thoughtful actors didn't step up in the, in the public arena, both at the state and federal level. Right, right. Your really most famous legislation really was the breach notification bill. Yeah, and, it's, as I say, I, you know, I look back and think <laughs> how naive I was. I, I had a, a little bill, I thought, that did just two things. Uh, they both seemed common sense to me. One was to say, look, if you've uh, lost somebody's information, if you've been hacked, uh, if you've just simply uh, let the information go missing, give them notice. Uh, and in so doing, give them the ability to protect themselves. Uh, I think you've heard me say many times, Mari, you know, what you don't know can hurt you. Uh, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to privacy. And, um, and the other piece of the bill was this requirement for folks doing uh, business online to uh, provide a privacy policy, however rigorous or not, uh, but then to at least abide by the provisions as well as making it conspicuously available. And Boy, I had to drag that through the state assembly. I, got, I remember I got 41 votes in the 80-member assembly, so the bare minimum. Yep. I had to implore uh, colleagues to 
get the 41 votes. And then when I got over to the Senate uh, as a then a freshman assembly member, I was struggling. And I, I'm sure you will remember uh, in the privacy annals, this was a pivotal moment when 265,000 financial records at the Teal Data Center that were uh, for the 265,000 various state employees were suddenly compromised. Yes. And two months later, uh, letters went out to those 265,000 people saying, oh, by the way, something you might want to know. And not insignificantly, kind of a a key uh, fun fact, 120 of the people who got that notice were members of the California State Legislature. (laughs) 80 80 members of the Assembly and 40 members of the Senate get a, a letter one day that says, oh, by the way, we may uh, have lost your financial information, and it's in the hands of party or parties unknown. And all of a sudden, as you can imagine, uh, my obscure little Silicon Valley <laughs> suddenly had some legs. To his great and lasting credit, uh, then-Senator Steve Peace picked the issue up in the state Senate, and all of a sudden I had a lot more traction uh, as a freshman assembly member than I ever would have otherwise. And so Senator Peace and I ended up doing essentially mirror image identical bills uh, that became uh, my AB 700 and his SB 1386 that uh, then formed the basis, as you know, for you know almost every other state in the country to, to follow suit and uh, require the same kind of or similar notification to consumers. And the thing that I've observed now over the decades since the, the law became effective is uh, that, it yes, it has empowered consumers because they have the information to take some action and protect themselves, but it has given uh, various uh, holders of this information, private and public sector, greater incentives to really beef up their security and privacy protection. The, the casualness with which this information was uh, dealt uh, a decade ago, uh, I think, would be shocking to a lot of people today. Uh, and as I say, even though we read too many stories about information being uh, lost, stolen, or strayed, uh, we're a whole lot better off because people understand now that if they lose it, there is a, a damage to their brand and a cost that uh, is pretty substantial uh, as a result of these notification requirements. And what was so brilliant, I think, about that bill, I thought, and, and people I talked to in the privacy industry and other, other lawyers that do privacy, we all think the most brilliant part about it was that you had the carrot as well as the stick. The stick was if you have personal information that's lost and it's unencrypted, then you have to notify. But if it is encrypted, then that that's the carrot. So that is what you're talking about, is that that really encouraged a lot of people to get to where they would um, make that information unreadable to an unauthorized person who, who gets a hold of it or a hacker. So that was, that was just so brilliant. You know, you thought it was an easy little bill, but it was, you know, sometimes they say, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, it was, it was really brilliant. And, and you're right. It, it has made a tremendous change across the country and you had no idea what, what it was going to, that's why I call you our privacy hero. Well, thank you. I mean, you're, you're kind to say so. I think, um, you know, it's, it's always easier looking back, uh, but at the time, you don't. The piece that, that frankly surprised me even more, uh, Mari, was the, the Online Privacy Protection Act, which, again, to me, seemed pretty simple. It said, you know, look, if you're going to do business online, you have to have a privacy policy conspicuously posted as rigorous and robust or not as you choose to make it. Right. And you have to actually follow the provisions of your privacy policy. And I thought that was, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, the first time around, the governor vetoed the bill, Governor uh, Gray Davis at the time. 
but he, to his credit, he said, look, I think you're on to something. Come back again next year. Try again. Uh, I came back in 2003 with the uh, same bill, but with some important tweaks. And, you know, at the time, did I, you know, hope that it would have uh, a helpful impact? Yes. But what I didn't realize until years later was that, sure enough, on its effective date uh, in 2004, uh, companies around the globe changed their privacy policies because they knew that they were now obliged to actually honor the commitments they made in their privacy policies. Companies around the globe actually posted their privacy policies more conspicuously because that was a requirement so that, you know, the online user could actually find the privacy policy they were looking for. And then, as I say, if you had ever told me that all these years later, uh, a California attorney general would be applying them to something called mobile apps, which I didn't, you know, uh, foresee, um, again, I would have been skeptical at the time. So you hope uh, that you've thought these things through in a way. And, I, and that's why I think there is a value to the simplicity uh, of it. Uh, uh, I think that, that done right, that can, can mean you're actually going to have more impact rather than less impact if you can make it broadly applicable but keep it simple. Yeah, you've been such a pioneer. I just want people, if you just tuned in, you are listening to uh, California Senator Joe Simidian, who's been in the legislature for 12 years. And because of term limits, he is going to be leaving the California Senate in November. But he will be going on to be a supervisor with the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors, where I know he's going to be incredibly effective. One of the things I know you've learned, and I know you're a lawyer, so you were always good at this, but, boy, you sure learned how to negotiate, didn't you? I mean, you had to learn how to get your votes. That must have been something, huh? Well, it, it, it goes back to the question you asked earlier about how do we make sure that people understand the importance of these issues, uh, including my colleagues. And, uh, again, I think, you know, if I ask my colleagues how much do your constituents care about privacy, if the question is asked in, in, in an abstract way, I, I don't think I get a lot of, uh, oh, yeah, that's a big deal for my folks. But if you start to ask the question in ways that are quite tangible and that uh, conjure up, uh, I, I think you remember, Mari, when I was doing some work on RFID technology, yes. you know, frequency identification, I was struggling mm. to explain <laughs> the vulnerabilities of the technology uh, as used in government identity documents until I finally got a hacker in my office who copied my card and one of my colleagues and, you know, we trooped down to the yeah. members-only parking lot at the basement of the Capitol. And, uh, you know, this uh, young man who'd had my card for a split second was suddenly able to not only let himself into the state Capitol, but able to do it using my identity. And all of a sudden, uh, people understood that, um, okay, this is real. And, again, I had to find a way to make the privacy implications more tangible. Uh, and that, that real-life demonstration uh, really was helpful. Yes. I, I find, as I talk to my colleagues, that uh, just as the, in the conversations with the public, uh, I've got to make the case that there's some real issue here, and um, that's the challenge that I think we're going to have in the years ahead as well. Exactly. I remember that. We talked about that before, that it's kind of shocked them. And, and that's, you know, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse is making YouTube video now because they're doing that to try and actually show real-life demonstrations like, what happens when a background check is wrong or what happens with, um, you know, credit bureaus, that people don't get it, but when she makes it a real-life situation, those YouTubes are great. So, Well, and, and the one other thing I would say, and, Mari, I think this is why your work uh, in terms of raising public awareness is so important, is I think most of us don't think about the ways in which we can play a role in our daily lives. And 
whether it's at work or at a merchant, to just stop and very politely say, no, thank you, I would prefer not to provide that information. Or, really, do we need to have that? Um, oh, there's a camera that documents our every movement in and out of the building. Is that information maintained in perpetuity? And if why? Do we really need to know, you know the comings and goings of every person who's come and gone over the last decade? And how do we make sure that that information isn't misused in some way? But, you know, all of us are in a position, you know, in our workplace and public buildings and in our interactions with the private sector to ask some questions, to raise these issues. And, if we don't, I think we can't be surprised if there's a continued erosion uh, of our privacy rights uh, simply by virtue of neglect. Well, we are just out of time. That was a perfect way to end. You always are perfect and so articulate, and we just love you, and we are going to miss you, but we're going to follow you and see where you're going after the Board of Supervisors, too. So thank you so much, Senator. I'm glad that you're still, at least for just a, a little while longer, with the Senate Select Committee. We will keep in touch, okay? It's been good to be with you, Mark. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much, Senator. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and please write us emails about what concerns you have about privacy in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.